So this morning we are continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be spending the next few months going through this book as we spend all of 2021 going through the New Testament. If you were with us last year, we know we worked our way from Genesis through Malachi. And so this year we're going to spend all of the year going through the New Testament. But we wanted to spend a significant amount of time in one of the Gospels. And the reason I chose Mark is because it is the earliest Gospel account that we have written. Mark is also very simple. He's very intentional. He moves from one story to the next very quickly. And so Mark's gospel is actually the shortest of all the gospel accounts, but it gives us a really good emphasis on Jesus as the suffering servant and Jesus as a disciple maker, which is why we have focused on this particular gospel. Now, beginning in chapter 2, all the way through chapter 3, verse 6, there are five controversies that Jesus has with the religious leaders of his day. And what Russell just read for us is the first of these controversies that are outlined in 2.1 through 3.6. Now, if you were with us last week, we unpacked very clearly what the gospel is and what it is not. And Mark begins in chapter 1 making sure that all of his readers understand very quickly what the gospel is. And the very first words that Jesus himself shares with us in the gospel of Mark is to repent and believe in the gospel. And that is what we unpacked last week. But today we're going to unpack the story of Jesus healing the paralytic. And there are four points, four observations that I want to go through with you today. Number one, people need Jesus. Number two, because he forgives sins. Number three, some will not like Jesus. And then number four, but others will be transformed. So number one, people need Jesus. Capernaum served as the headquarters of Jesus's ministry. It was on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, seven miles wide, 13 miles long, and it was full of people from all walks of life, Jews, Gentiles, Romans. It was a port city. It was a great melting pot of people. And so Jesus establishes Capernaum kind of as his headquarters, as his home base. And Mark tells us at the very beginning of chapter 2 that it was reported that Jesus had returned home. This idea of reporting carries with it the idea that word is beginning to get out about who Jesus is and about what he has done in chapter 1. He healed a leper. He removed the fever from Simon's mother-in-law. And he healed a demon-possessed man. And by the time he returns to Capernaum, word is out about Jesus. In fact, the text tells us that it is so crowded that no one could even get through the door of his house. It was completely packed full of people all over having heard the miraculous things that Jesus had already done. Now keep in mind, at this point in Mark's gospel, we have very little teaching of Jesus. All we know about at this point is that he has gone around and done these miraculous things, like healing the blind, healing the leper. And probably part of the crowd that gathered in front of his house was there simply to check out the new guy. Now, I have experience with this. 
Because my very first Sunday, there were a lot of people that came to check out the new guy. And some of those people have returned and some haven't. Sometimes people are just interested in checking out the new guy. And probably a part of the crowd that was at Jesus' house that day was just to kind of see what this guy Jesus was all about. We've heard these miracles that he's done. He's done some incredible things, but now we want to see with our own eyes if this guy is truly who he claims to be. Crowd, the word for crowd, is used for the very first time in this passage in the Gospel of Mark. And it's used 37 times in Mark's Gospel. That's an emphasis that he has, trying to help us to understand that wherever Jesus went, masses of people came to hear what he had to say. Now, during the Enlightenment, which none of us were around for that, but you learned about it in school, everything that went against reason and rationality began to be questioned. And even those who followed Jesus, during the Enlightenment, many people began to question Can we really believe the historical accounts that we have of Jesus in the Gospels? And so there was this group of New Testament scholars, and they started this movement that has now come to be known as the quest for the historical Jesus. And what these scholars do is they take the miracles of Jesus and the sayings of Jesus, and they try to determine if these events can actually be verified according to the criteria of history. And this began as a very liberal movement within the academy, but now this questioning of Jesus' miracles and this questioning of his teaching is not just taking place in the university setting, it has trickled down to everyday mainstream life like with people like you and me. So basically what happens is Over time, as people study deeply the teachings of Jesus, they have to make this decision. Am I going to believe that the Bible is the authoritative word of God, or am I going to choose to say that Jesus probably didn't actually say these things? This is probably what the crowd was doing in Capernaum that day. They were okay with Jesus as long as he was going to teach things that they already agreed with themselves. They were okay with Jesus as long as his teachings confirmed with things that they had already believed in their minds. That's how it is for many people today. Everybody's good with Jesus until he steps on their toes in his teaching about marriage or his teaching about divorce or his teaching about any of the other controversial subjects that happen in our culture today. And in the midst of Of this occasion, four men bring a friend who is paralyzed to Jesus. The text tells us that they are carrying him on this cot. And there are so many people in the house and outside the house that they cannot even get through the door of his house. And so in first century Palestine, many houses had stairs that were actually outside the house. And so you could take those stairs up to the roof. And most roofs in Jesus' day were made with wooden beams and they were cross-laid with branches. And those branches would be packed with grass and clay 
and dirt to prevent rain from coming in. So these men carry their friend up the stairs to the roof of the house and they begin digging and they carve a hole in the roof. Now just imagine as Jesus is there sitting with people from all over, probably teaching, and mud and clay and grass begin to fall. Um, Maybe even on top of his head. Mark doesn't tell us. But I don't think it would be too much out of the realm of possibility for all of this grass and this mud and clay to begin falling either on top of Jesus or others that are in the house. But his friends carve out this opening in the roof and they drop their friend directly at the feet of Jesus. What Mark is teaching us here is the urgency that these men had for bringing their friend to Jesus. The urgency of making sure that this man meet the one who had the ability to heal him. If I'm being honest this morning, I can't really think of too many times in my own life where I've had that type of urgency to make sure that somebody close to me, neighbor, family member, coworker, who didn't know Christ, would I go to that extreme to make sure that they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? David Brainerd, a great missionary, one of the earliest missionaries in America. He went all over sharing the gospel with Native Americans. He died at the age of 29. He went through many, many hardships. But so many great missionaries throughout the history looked to David Brainerd as the one who was like their idol, William Carey and others. You can read his book. It's called The Life and Times and Diaries of David Brainerd. And in that book, he talks about all of the ways that he would stop at nothing to ensure that these Native American tribes had the opportunity to hear the gospel. And here's what he says in one of his entries. He said this, I care not where I go or how I live or what I endure so that I may save souls. When I sleep, I dream of them. When I awake, they are first in my thoughts. That's how I imagine These men who brought their paralyzed friend to Jesus must have been thinking, we will do whatever it takes to ensure that our friend gets to see Jesus face to face because they wanted their friend to be healed. So not only do people need Jesus, but number two, they need him because he forgives sins. Now, in the story, it's very clear The men bring their friend to Jesus because they want him to be healed physically. But if you will notice in the text, Jesus does not begin with the physical. He begins with the spiritual. The story is a good reminder for all of us about the urgency of the spiritual condition of our hearts and the hearts of those that we know and the hearts of those that we love We can never stop short of communicating the urgency of the spiritual condition of a human being, even at the expense of the physical condition. And I realized this firsthand when we spent 10 years in New Orleans. The very first few years, we were a part of a ministry that weekly went into the streets of New Orleans and fed homeless people. We did it 52 weeks out of the year. Every Wednesday night, we would go and we would feed them a meal. And I felt the weight of making sure that those people that we fed understood 
the spiritual condition of their soul. Yes, it was important to feed them a hot meal, but the primary reason we were there was to ensure that they heard the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But over time, we began to get involved in other ministries. We began to invest in a group of young men, and we worked with them for seven, eight, nine years. And there were so many times when I was involved in that ministry that it came to be more about making sure they made good grades in school, making sure that they could get to college, making sure that they could be financially independent. And sometimes the urgency of the physical ended up taking the place of the urgency of the spiritual. And what we see Jesus doing in this passage is that the physical and the spiritual both matter. But if we have to choose which one should take priority, it is very clear. The spiritual condition of men's and women's souls are more important than the physical condition that they might have. Jesus, in this passage, gives us a picture of someone who is able to balance perfectly The physical condition and the spiritual condition. In the ancient world, especially in Jesus' day, there was always, or at least a lot of times, a relationship between one's physical condition and their spiritual condition. So it's very possible in this story that the man who came to be healed by Jesus, as the crowd watches Jesus do this, many in that crowd probably thought the reason that this man is paralyzed is because he has sin in his life. That's a way that a lot of people thought in the first century. Physical illness was related to spiritual illness. And so Jesus comes in, His friends drop him through the hole in the roof. And Jesus tells the man, your sins have been forgiven. I would challenge all of you this morning, as you think through the implications of the gospel, of what we talked about last week, and as we go out into our neighborhoods with our coworkers, our families and friends, when we are sharing the gospel with them. Let's be very clear that we don't sell some American version of Christianity that is different from the biblical understanding of Christianity. Hear me this morning. You do not need Jesus to make you a successful person. You do not need Jesus to make lots of money. You do not need Jesus to be kind and compassionate or to be driven or to be good at your job. There are lots of people that are not followers of Jesus that are wildly successful in this community and in this country and around the world. Jesus is not somebody that we choose to follow so that we can be a successful and productive member of society. There are so many other ways that you can learn how to do that. Millions and millions of dollars are spent in the self-help section of Amazon and Barnes & Noble. You can learn how to be successful in your career just by reading those books. And none of those books can forgive you of your sins. None of them. Being a motivational speaker, people can travel the world and make millions of dollars selling people. Here is how to become the best version of you. And none of those motivational speakers can forgive you of your sins. 
The gospel teaches something radically different than what me and you often hear in our American culture. Jesus is costly. To follow after him should cost us something. So when we share the gospel with people that we know, it is not about following after Jesus so that they can become a productive member of society. It is about following after Jesus because apart from him, there is no way you can receive forgiveness of your sins. Number three, we see in this passage that some people will not like Jesus. The scribes in this story. Remember I told you that this is one of five instances in these chapters, chapters 2 and 3, where Jesus rubs or you know, causes friction with the religious leaders of the day. They begin talking and they notice that Jesus has just told this man that he has been forgiven of his sins and they freak out. And they call him a blasphemer. Now, blaspheming God is not just speaking untruthfully about God or speaking negatively about God. It can also be when you claim to be on par with God or you claim to be God himself. And when Jesus forgives this man of his sins, that is a task that only God himself can do. So Mark is implying here in chapter 2 of his gospel that Jesus is now God in the flesh. As soon as Jesus told this man, your sins have been forgiven, he is claiming an authority that nobody else had claimed before. And so these scribes are appalled that Jesus is claiming to be God in the flesh And the scribes in this story represent one of many instances throughout all four Gospels where Jesus has to spend most of his time rebuking and teaching not the people who are lost, but the people who are religious. The people who think that they're right with God. And religious people do not always align with Jesus. See, religious people like rules and structure and regulations. And Jesus appreciates all of those as well, but he challenges people throughout the Gospels on the function of ritual and regulation and structure. Rules and regulations and structures, they can be good things, but if they become the ultimate thing, if they become the actual thing that we worship, then we are no longer worshiping God, but worshiping religion. And when we begin to worship religion and the structures of religion and the rituals surrounding religion, rather than God himself, we have essentially created a false god and we are guilty of idolatry. And Mark tells us in this passage that Jesus perceived in his spirit that these scribes had a problem with his teaching. And if I'm honest, in some ways I get it. I don't know how I would have reacted if I was a scribe in that day and Jesus comes up and he begins to claim 
that he can forgive sins. I'm not sure how I would have reacted. So I'm a little sympathetic here to the scribes in this passage because these men, they knew the law well. They knew that a Messiah was coming. And when this man comes and claims that he can forgive sins, they're a little uneasy. They're a little worried that he might be claiming something that he can't actually do. And the problem was that the Jewish people of Jesus' day were expecting a Messiah vastly different from Jesus. They were looking for a political ruler, a warrior who was going to come in and annihilate the Romans and restore Israel to be the great world power of the day. But instead, what they got in Jesus was a suffering servant who gave his life as a ransom for many. Now, you might be wondering, aren't the passages about this Messiah being a suffering servant in the Old Testament, aren't they there? Yes. But we as human beings are guilty of picking and choosing what parts of the Bible we want to follow and what parts we don't. And these scribes did the exact same thing. They preferred to focus on the passages about the Messiah that had him as a strong, priestly king rather than a meek, suffering servant. Even though the picture of Jesus being there was that way in the Old Testament. So what happens is we pick and we choose As we work our way through the Gospels, as we study the Bible over the course of our lives, one of the things that always happens when you read God's Word is you will come up or you will come across sections of Scripture, passages of Scripture that really challenge you, that go against what you want to believe in your heart and in your mind. And when you come up against those passages... You have to pray that the Holy Spirit would move you to submit to the teaching of God's word. Not everything that the Bible teaches aligns with what the culture at large thinks and believes. One of our founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, ran up against this exact problem. The third president of our United States, I can name all of them if you want me to, but I won't. The third president of our United States, upon reading scripture in the age of reason and rationality, came to the conclusion that he could not accept the supernatural. He could not accept the miracles of the Bible. So you know what Thomas Jefferson did? He created his own Bible. You can look this up later. It's called the Jefferson Bible. And he went in and he edited out all of the gospel stories that have to do with the miracles of Jesus, including all four accounts of the resurrection in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's really easy to do this. If you want to take God's word, if you want to take the gospels and just believe the parts that align with what you already believe, you can be just like Thomas Jefferson and do that. You can be just like many others who say, I love Jesus' teaching on this, but I don't like it on that. So I'm going to take a little bit of Jesus. I'm going to take a little bit of Buddha. I'm going to take a little bit of Hinduism, and I'm going to kind of make this melting pot of my own religion. And when people do that, they are basically worshiping themselves. They have created their own religion. 
They have done what the Israelites in the book of Exodus were guilty of doing when Moses is up on Mount Sinai with God. And they tell Aaron, we need someone to worship. So Aaron gathers all of the gold in the camp and he constructs this golden calf. And the people begin to worship this golden calf. That's the same thing that happens today. When we try to take bits and pieces of different religion and say, this is what works for me because it aligns with what I already believe and so this is going to be good for me. The problem with that is Jesus does not provide that as an option for us. He never says that. Let me give you this great quote from C.S. Lewis in his most famous book, Mere Christianity. I think I've shared it with you before. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. This is C.S. Lewis teaching 50, 60, 70, 80 years ago. We don't have the option, according to Scripture, to pick and choose what we want to believe when it comes to Jesus. The Gospels are there They are inspired, they are authoritative, and even when we come up against those passages that rub us the wrong way, that convict us, we don't want to say, I'm going to ignore that conviction. We want the Spirit to move in our hearts and in our minds and to show us why it is that Jesus would teach what he teaches on this issue or that issue. Jesus teaches something radically different than a self-consumed religion. He teaches this when he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, deny himself, and take up his cross and follow me. Now in this passage, Jesus knew the concern of the scribes. He knew what the crowds came to see. They doubted that he could actually forgive sins. So what he does is he heals the paralyzed man to validate the forgiveness of sins that he did earlier. So in other words, Jesus uses the healing of the paralytic to show the crowd that he had the authority to forgive sins. And he proved it by healing the man of his physical ailment. Did he have to? No. But he chose to, to demonstrate further to those in the crowd that this man truly is the Son of God. Now, the favorite self-designation that Jesus uses of himself in the Gospels is Son of Man. 
He doesn't use Son of God. He doesn't use the Messiah. He doesn't use the Christ when he's talking about himself. He almost always uses Son of Man. And that comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, that are describing one who will come and establish God's kingdom on earth. So in this title, Son of Man, God can, or excuse me, Jesus can relate to the people as a human being. But he also knows that as good Jewish people, they would understand Daniel 7. They would remember this concept of the Son of Man who was God in the flesh coming to establish his kingdom on earth. So in this designation, we see both the humanity of Jesus and his divinity. And you can read more about that in Daniel 7 verses 13 and 14. And so we understand as we look at these scribes in this passage that some people will reject Jesus. Some people will not agree with his teaching. They will not like what he says. They will not like the exclusivity of the gospel. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. People in our culture today do not like that verse. But we don't have the option to edit it out. We don't have the option to cut it out and create our own Bible like Thomas Jefferson did. Jesus calls us to follow after him. And he teaches us that it is going to be costly. And it might cost you relationships. But the reward for following after me is far greater than any earthly reward that you might receive. Number four, we also see that other people are transformed by the power of the gospel. This paralyzed man that we read about here in Mark 2 has not only been healed physically, but most importantly, he has been healed spiritually. Now, the people in the crowd, they probably walk away that day more amazed that he got up and walked out of the house. But you and me don't need to be fooled. The miraculous aspect of the story is not so much a man being able to walk again. It is Jesus himself telling this man, your sins have been forgiven. That is the miracle of the gospel. That you and me, sinners, undeserving of a relationship with God can be made right with God through what Jesus has done for us on the cross. We can be forgiven of our sin. That is the point of Mark 2, 1 through 12. It is so much greater than a man being able to walk again from paralysis. It is that a man who is spiritually sick and spiritually dead can be made alive in Christ. That is the significance of this story. That is what Mark wants us to leave today understanding. That no matter what might happen to you in this physical life, there is hope. You can receive forgiveness of sins. The worst possible thing that Jesus could have done in this passage would have been to heal the man physically and leave without him being forgiven spiritually. The worst thing that we can do is think that as long as my physical life on earth is going well, that must mean that spiritually speaking, I'm okay with God. 
And that is not true. Think of all the people in your life. I know you know people that are not followers of Jesus. And they are wildly successful in this world. And the reason that happens is because there is this concept called God's common grace in which he bestows his grace to all human beings, regardless of whether or not they are in Christ. The fact that anybody can wake up in the morning and have life, regardless of whether or not they're a Christ follower or not, is a result of God's common grace. You can be rich and successful and have everything this world has to offer, and you can be spiritually dead and apart from Jesus. Or you can have nothing that this world has to offer. You can be poor and destitute and persecuted. But if you are in Christ, when you go to heaven, you will have riches in heaven. That is the significance of this passage. That we don't always correlate our earthly circumstances to our spiritual life. We talk regularly about our brothers and sisters around the world who many of are serving as missionaries in dangerous places, followers of Jesus that are in closed countries that have to gather quietly around their kitchen table, maybe even hiding in a closet just so that they can get a glimpse of God's word. They have none of the success that me and you as Americans have, and yet when they die, they're going to be in heaven right alongside of us even though they had none of the earthly pleasures that you and me as Americans oftentimes get to experience. The transformation that Mark wants us to understand today is the condition of our spiritual lives far outweighs whatever might come upon us in this life. And I love the way this passage ends in verse 12. The people walk out After seeing this happen, they're talking amongst themselves and the text tells us we never saw anything like this. And I'm here to tell you this morning, you will never see anything like Jesus. There will never be any teaching that will ever come along that will even come close to offering what Jesus offers. And what I'm offering you is not earthly success but I'm offering you spiritual riches in heaven with God. Verse 10 says this, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, that you may know, not hope, not wish, not cross your fingers that if you've done enough at the end of your life, God will take care of you. No, you can know that. If you trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross, if you turn from your sin and turn to Jesus and believe that he died for you and rose again three days later, you can be in eternity forever with God. That is the message of the gospel. Turn from your sin, trust in Christ, believe in the resurrection, and just see how God uses you to advance his kingdom in this world. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this story. Most importantly, we thank you that Jesus in this story never lost sight of what was most important. 
that the spiritual condition of this paralyzed man was more important than whether or not he got healed. So God, we come before you today examining our own hearts. Maybe some of us here have unconfessed sin that we need to bring before you. Maybe some of us here have never repented and believed in the gospel. We know that you came to give your life as a ransom for many. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if there's anyone here today that needs to make that decision, I pray that they would be obedient. And if your spirit is convicting them, that you would move in their hearts and minds. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for this story where we learn more about what the gospel actually is. We ask all these things in Christ's name, amen.